Nothing in this podcast is intended as investment advice, and the people in this podcast may have a position in the stocks they talk about. Do not buy anything based solely on a tip or recommendation or the content of this podcast. Do your own research. Welcome, Dr. Andy Palmer, to the All Points West podcast. Andy is the Interim Chief Executive of PodPoint, which is a provider of electric vehicle charging stations. He's also the founder of the Palmer Foundation, which sponsors school leavers to take on apprenticeships. But Andy's probably best known as a former chief executive of Aston Martin, the British sports car maker, famous for making James Bond's favourite car. And he also led the development of the Nissan Leaf, which was, I think I'm right in saying, the world's first mass market electric car. So Andy, where does your love of cars and the automobile industry, automobile industry come from? Oh, well, that goes back an awful long way. So probably to a 14-year-old kid whose father bought him a, a, a write-off A-series engine and I spent my weekends taking it to pieces and putting it back together again and taking it to pieces and getting it back together again. So it sort of correlated with my enjoyment of maths and physics and led me to the conclusion that the fastest way for me to do what I wanted to do was to leave school at 15 and start an apprenticeship at 16. But to your point, I I guess I'll attribute my love of automotive to my father and that purchase of that A-series engine, which of course was the engine that famously went into the Austin Mini. Yeah. So let's let's delve into that uh, a little bit then. So if you just wouldn't mind, just tell the listeners, where did you grow up? What was that like? Do you have siblings? What did your mum and dad do? Yeah, well, I was um, I was born in, in Birmingham, but we, we moved to a place that you'll know, Stratford-on-Avon, famous for Shakespeare, when I was 10 months old. So I call... I call Stratford home, and my, unfortunately, my father has, has departed us, but my mum still lives there. Um, I have a, a sibling, a brother, who's five years younger than me. My, my grandparents, uh, one side of the family, my maternal side, all worked in one way, shape, or form at Cabris, and the other side, my paternal side, all worked at what was variously called Austin or Rover or Austin Rover Morris. Uh, but actually, during the war in particular, my grandmother worked on the manufacturing of bullets inside a, um, a facility at Longbridge, which I ended up turning into an engine test facility. So the family is very much rooted working class Birmingham. My, my father was the the first member of the family that, that got a degree, but he did it the same as I did all uh, during the course of my career on a part-time basis. Yeah. You're kind of unlike a lot of other executives in that you did leave school at 16 and you took on an apprenticeship. Where did you do your apprenticeship and what attracted you to take that path at uh, the age of 16? Was it was it the influence of your father, do you think? I, I think very much the influence of my father. He, he'd done an apprenticeship. He was a production engineer at GKN. Uh, the, the local best apprenticeship was at a company called 
automotive products, AP, making brakes and clutches and based in Leamington Spa. And, and it suited where I was in life. And my parents couldn't afford to send me to university. So it was a natural conclusion that I would, I, I'd leave school and, and find something at the age of 16. And that's exactly what I did. Fortunately for me, as I said, I, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an engineer. So yeah. uh, when you have that level of focus, it makes life's choices easy. And it's a natural extension from you tinkering around in your dad's shed. So as a result, you obviously enjoyed your apprenticeship and apprenticeships are still very much close to, to your heart now. Yeah, the best time of my life was undoubtedly my apprenticeship years. Those four years of of training in something that I love, uh, but also meeting my long-term friends, and they still are my my friends that I, that I came from that time. So best years of my life were definitely my apprenticeship years. Yeah. I'm assuming as a result of uh, your experience, you now run the Palmer Foundation, which is your own foundation. So tell us about that. What is it and how does it work? The Palmer Foundation is basically to give kids from a disadvantaged background some form of engineering or technical apprenticeship in automotive and I wanted to, I won't say create the next, next, next generation, Andy, but but it's some part of that of of giving kids the opportunity that I had. I was lucky. I had a mom and dad that could, could guide me. And the foundation is there to give other kids that opportunities. And right now we have uh, eight kids that are basically part of the foundation on an apprenticeship, learning how to be technicians. And, you know, hopefully they have a long and successful career ahead of them. Where where generally do they end up? Which companies do they end up working at? I have a really successful partnership with uh, Halfords. Uh, at the moment, most of what I'm doing is, is focused around that partnership. It's not an exclusive partnership, but we have in the Halfords management some really open-minded people understanding that there's a mutual benefit in creating talent for the future, and they get first picks at. I'm also working with a number of care homes, so young people care homes, uh, in the um, Northampton, Nottingham, Leicester uh, area that will also create, from about the age of 14, the funnel of kids coming into the foundation. And, you know, in a care home, it's a tough way to, to be brought up and no parents there to guide you. So hopefully that's an area where I can have an impact. Andy, that's a really admirable thing to do, and it's fantastic that you're in a position to do that. I know a lot of executives talk about giving back to society, but this is really impressive and life-changing for those who you are helping. Now, I'm going to skip through some of your career because you've had a, a, a long and really interesting and varied career. So after your apprenticeship, you joined Austin Rover in 1986, and then in 1991, you moved on to, to Nissan, and that was quite an important marker in your in your career. Why did you join them? What attracted you to Nissan? I would say two things were having an impact on me. So if you take you back to that era, you'll remember that Honda was working with Austin Rover and creating uh, vehicles um, like the um, 825 and the 800 series. And what was very obvious to me at the time was that the Japanese and the Japanese approach to automotive was significantly more effective than that of the Rover or British approach. They were making better cars, more reliable cars at better prices. And, and it struck me the need to go and learn what they were really doing because inside 
uh, Austin Rove, you only get a certain glimpse of some of the things like the work of Gemba Kandri and Kaizen and stuff like that. But they tended to be um, just little morsels. And my thinking was, I really need to understand what these Japanese are doing uh, in order to learn and, and bring it back to the British car industry. Yeah. The second thing that happened was I, I read a book called The Machine That Changed the World. Um, and it was basically about the Japanese industry. It was written by MIT. Uh, and it talks about lean. And it was my first introduction into into what, what you would call lean manufacturing, um, uh, the, the principles of plan, do, check, action. These two together... And it was a bit callous at the time because I, well, I've got to go and learn. And so the opportunity came to to go to Nissan and I grasped it with both hands, thinking that I would only be there a few years and I'd be able to bring all those lessons back into the into the British car industry. Of course, as, as history shows, the British car industry <laughs> sort of fell away uh, and I ended up staying at Nissan um, and, and had that fortunate opportunity to spend 13 years working in Japan and really understanding that Japanese mechanism intrinsically. Yeah. So that desire to see the inner workings of what was really the benchmark uh, of, of mass vehicle manufacturing eventually led you to Japan. You, I think you moved to Japan in 2002 and you became program director of Nissan Light Commercial Vehicles. And eventually you were promoted to the executive committee. Is that the equivalent of the Nissan board? Yes. So obviously you have some non-exec that's, uh, that sits and, and audits above. But basically I was at the end of my tenure at uh, Nissan, I was essentially chief operating officer, number two to a uh, gentleman, which is you know was famous then, still famous for the wrong reasons now, but a gentleman called Carlos Ghosn that basically led the Renault-Nissan alliance. So he was my direct boss. And I was basically responsible for most of the Japanese operations. So, you know, uh, fundamental, though, I would say, was basically the, the creation of product. Now, how much of a culture shock was it when you moved from Britain to Japan? Um, Japan's different. I mean, I'd been, and I'd been visiting for many years on business trips basis. But in, in 2002... Um, my boss's secretary received a call from Carlos Gern's office. She raced over and said, "My goodness, you got Carlos Gern on the on the line," and, and so I was put through to to him. And he said, "Andy, I'd, I'd like you to come to Japan in the next two weeks." And I said, "Yeah, no problem." He said, "No, I think you misunderstand. I want you to move to Japan in the next two weeks." And it wasn't quite two weeks; it was more like four weeks. But I uproot and, and moved and. When you first go to Japan, it's about as alien as you can get compared to the middle of England. Uh, the, the writing is different. Um, the language is very different. The construct is very different. Food is very different. Um, and I think what happens when you move into that environment, you either you either embrace it or you hide away from it. And I didn't. I, I went the opposite way. I integrated as much as I could into society. My... Uh, then partner came over and that helped me get even more integrated and you know within six months i i loved almost everything about it but most importantly i love the professionalism around the company in creating some of the best motor cars that, that could be produced i loved my uh, ability to influence that and to be viewed by the japanese particularly uh, post-alliance to be viewed by the japanese as being Nissan, not Renault, and therefore 
pseudo Japanese, not pseudo French. And that allowed me a, a level of closeness with my Japanese colleagues that allowed me to, to really penetrate into the culture and the way of working and, and what makes vehicles designed in Japan really to be some, amongst some of the best in the world. Yeah. You mentioned there about it being cutting edge. Um, I know what you mean, but to some people, they'll think about Nissan as a mass market. How can it be cutting edge? Well, for a period, you oversaw the Nissan Leaf project, which I think is fair enough to say that at the time was pretty cutting edge. So talk to me a little bit about how did the Leaf project come about? What were the biggest challenges in you getting that to market? So um, you're absolutely right. Prius was kicking our ass well and it was your and it was your big competitor as well wasn't it uh, you know in japan and, and globally yeah globally the, the main comparators and my sales and marketing guys were screaming at me saying annie we, we we need a nissan prius and fortunately at one moment when i first came over to japan when i was like commercial vehicle program director it was the unprofitable part of the business and there was another unprofitable car which was the californian compliance vehicles which were which were loss making hugely loss making yeah but they were technology demonstrators so i knew deep down in the bowels of engineering there was a capability around ev i knew in front of me that i was facing toyota and making a me too product wasn't going to differentiate us and it wasn't aligned with the brand of nissan that i was trying to build which was innovation that excites so I went rather to the sort of advanced engineering division and said, what does the full electric look like? Can can we make something that can credibly differentiate ourselves but compete with Prius? And so we aligned with this story of it's the next step, it's leapfrog technology, but more importantly, it gets away with the redundancy of having both an electric engine and an internal combustion engine. And there was born the, the, the concept. Originally, honestly, the con- original concept, it was going to be a van. It was going to be the EMV 200, which came later. Um, but, but, but ultimately, we felt that going into the heart of the C segment, the biggest segment in the world, really, uh, was, was really what we needed to do. And we needed to make a product that was not an excuse. It was a really good C segment competitor, but it was an electric one. And that's what we got. And yet, we, I think we leveraged the best of Nissan's innovation. Uh, we had to create a, a battery company because we didn't have a battery. So we, we went into a joint venture with NEC and created AESC. Today it's called Envision. Uh, we built battery factories in the US. We built in Sunderland and we built in Japan. We created essentially the first connected car because we felt it was necessary to have that connectivity to get the data back. And I would say we built the first first of that lithium battery generation. EVs have been around for a long time, but they, they weren't lithium batteries. And so, um, you know, I think if you look at today where EVs are almost as certain as death and tax, you look at the role that the LEAF played, it was absolutely fundamental to that shift. Along with Tesla, that made it cool. And basically, they created their bespoke platform a little later. And of course, along with VW, that the really, you know, screwed up the, the internal combustion engine with that diesel gate, you put those three together, and you create the, the foundations for what is today a transition to electric vehicles. Yeah, you know, I've seen you being referred to as the godfather of EV. I mean, I don't know how you how you feel about that. It's better than being called the grandfather. <laughs> So moving on then, after the LEAF, in October 2014, um, 
there was another marker in your career. You came back to the UK when you were appointed chief executive of Aston Martin Lagonda. How did that come about? Well, you started to see the problems that Carlos Ghosn was, was, was having. And he was getting pressure from the French government to integrate Renault and Nissan. He was getting pressure from the Japanese government to do the opposite. He made some statements um, which to me were counterintuitive to the Nissan that I'd sort of learned and loved to understand, which was one of meritocracy. And he talked about the future CEO of Nissan being Japanese and the future CEO of, of Renault being European. And, and, and to me, that was like, that cut off my next step. So there was a negative there. Uh, and I was coming to terms, you know, at 21 years old, I'd set myself the ambition of becoming a CEO of a car company. Yeah. And suddenly that progression was cut off. And then out of the blue, I got a call from the uh, Italian PE company that had bought Aston. And I was aware of Aston, but importantly, Nissan had looked at it in terms of, you know, should it be the cherry on the Nissan cake? Uh, should we buy it? Because you had Datsun, Nissan, Infinity, and it would have been Aston on top. We decided not to go ahead with it. Uh, but it meant I had a fairly good understanding of the challenges around Aston. And they called me up and said, do you want to be the CEO, the most iconic, maybe most iconic car company in the world? And I thought about it for about three nanoseconds and said yes. Um, and and I've, I mean, arrogantly thought I had the skill set to finally come back to the UK and do what I said I would do in my mid-twenties of bringing all that accumulated knowledge back to the UK industry. And for five years, it went really, really well. So the conversation you're referring to is the private equity firm Invest Industrial that owned Aston Martin at the time. So when you got your feet under the desk there, uh, Aston, what were the big challenges that you had to overcome? And, and how true is it to say that the business was essentially saved by James Bond? Could you just talk us through how that all came about? Well, in a way, I suppose it was, but not necessarily for the reasons that you would think. Um, but basically, I came in October. Um, my first meeting with the CFO, um, he basically declared the company bankrupt because we were going to miss the, the covenants on the loans that we had. Uh, and we had a threshold level that we had to meet. And his forecast between October the 1st and to the end of the year was that we would miss those covenants and would go into bankruptcy, which was a bit of a surprise, I have to say. It wasn't quite the story that I was sold being bought into the company. We did a lot of things in, in, in there's not much you can do in three months. Uh, but we did a lot of cost saving that we could do. But most importantly, we had this this vehicle, which ultimately became the, the DB10, where a car that was done uh, entirely for the James Bond movie. Uh, and we were able to demonstrate that we could capitalise it. And and by the, by the function of capitalising it, because it, it was and became the prototype of the Vantage, we could demonstrate it was part of that development cycle. And therefore, ultimately, we're able to avoid breaching the covenants. And it kept the company alive. To the end of January, at the end of January, I went to the board with the second century plan, which is my five-year plan. Uh, within that, we put forward the hypothesis of borrowing 200 million. And that 200 million combined with operation, uh, um, cash from operations allowed us to create DB11, the revenue from that, the Vantage, the DBS, and eventually probably the most important, the DBX, the SUV, 
and the Valkyrie. And together, that was how we funded the plans. But ultimately, yes, you can say that somehow or other DB10 or James Bond initially saved the company from bankruptcy. Which film was it that the Vantage prototype appeared in? Spectre. Spectre. Okay, yeah. That was a bit of a wild ride that, as you say, you probably weren't expecting. It was, Aston was a wild, Aston was a wild ride uh, right from the beginning. But, you know, for the pretty much the only time in its history during, during that period, we were able, particularly with DB11, to turn it into a profitable company. Well, I was going to say it, it had been loss making for many years. And, and as you say, you managed to turn it around. And I know by the time you uh, you floated the company, was it 2018 that happened? Uh, 2018, yes, yeah. uh, we floated. I think you'd, you'd certainly been profitable for a few years up to that point, hadn't you? Yes, yeah. I mean, it was that profitability and that ability to look into the future and the future plan, which formed the nucleus of the hypothesis of floating. Um, unfortunately, there was a spectre of Brexit and the uncertainty of what Brexit meant that, that was also playing out there. Difficult market in 2019. 2019 became a very difficult year. Yeah. Now, since leaving Aston Martin, you've gone plural. We touched on it a little bit before we started to record. Uh, for a while, you headed up uh, Switch Mobility, which is a bus maker formerly called Octair. Um, one of the companies that you're currently involved with is Podpoint, the EV charging firm where you are interim CEO. What has that role at Podpoint taught you about the EV market in Britain that you didn't already know? So step one back, you know, what I wanted to do was finish off something, finish off a legacy of what had been created in the first instance by LEAF. When I started LEAF, what I really wanted to create was an infrastructure of net zero carbon. And what quickly became apparent was that getting to net zero was impossible in that current climate. There was too much too much negativity around the idea of EVs, and you needed to not just fix the car, but you needed to fix the infrastructure around it and the electricity that charged the vehicle and making steel that was net carbon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we, stepped, we stepped backwards, and LEAF was created as... Uh, zero emission, in other words, no tailpipe. But clearly, LEAF was not net zero because there was carbon involved in the manufacturing of the battery, of the vehicle, and in the charging. Yeah. So step forward, you know, 15 years. And what I wanted to do coming out of Aston was to go plural, uh, but, but also understand how to get to that net zero space. So look at the problem from different perspectives. Now, one of those perspectives is, of course, the the energy required to charge the vehicles. And uh, the best way to do that was to get involved in Podpoint, which is um, a charge point provider. It's the largest charge point provider in the United Kingdom by a long way. Um, Understanding how you could make the transition to net zero in the charging of the vehicle starts to become a really interesting um, challenge. So you look at it from that perspective. I also chair a company called Innerbat, which is a cell maker. So how do you get to a net zero battery? And so I also took on chairmanship of a company called Ionetic, which is all about the pack, the cooling. 
chairmanship of a company called Brill, which is all about the battery control unit, the control. So, so basically looking at that perspective, I founded and took on the chairmanship of a company called Hilo, which is basically an e-scooter business looking at that last one mile. And I started to work with companies like Tello Trucks, um, uh, Everati, that look at different aspects of the car manufacturers and, and what makes it difficult or what could be solution providing from them. When you get all of that, you can see the complexity of moving towards net zero, but you can also see the opportunity. And, yeah. and that, if you want, gives me a platform on which I would argue that I can commentate to governments and in the press and, for example, help the Labour Party in the UK recently write their transportation manifesto, work with governments of other countries to write their transportation strategy and help ease that transition towards where transportation is a part of the solution and not part of the problem. Yeah. You mentioned there about governments. That leads me on nicely. You are occasionally called in to advise government on things like exports, apprenticeships, etc. What do you think about the current government pushing back its own deadline to phase out sales of new petrol and diesel vehicles. It was 2030 and Rishi Sunak has pushed it back to 2035. What has that done to the manufacturers, charging infrastructure providers, and also consumer confidence in the EV market, do you think? Um, I can only describe it as unhelpful, which is, I suppose, is a typical British understatement. Very diplomatic. Um, <laughs> it's really, really unhelpful. Um, it's unhelpful because it doesn't change anything, mm. really. I mean, basically, underneath that legislation is the legislation, a regulation on the car makers. And that regulation on the car makers says that whoever they are, let's say Ford or Nissan, they have to sell 22% of their fleet in 2024 as EV. They're about 16% of their fleet today. So they have to increase the penetration of, of EVs next year or face a tariff. Yeah. And by 2030, it has to be 80%. So underneath, the car makers are being forced to push EVs. What Sunak has done by moving the 2030 to 2035 is simply take away the pull. So consumers are now not sure about whether EVs are coming or not. They don't have the natural pull. And so what happens is that the car makers have to push, and that leads to unprofitability, makes the UK market less attractive because of the discounting, means that the car makers won't bring certain models because they're, they're super unprofitable. But more than that, it means that any foreign investor looks at the UK used to look at the UK as a safe place to invest. It's got the rule of law, it's got English language, good education. It was always a reliable, stable government. And now you look at it and you go, well, the UK could just as easily change its mind next week. Probably will change its mind next week. You know, as, as the socialist government comes in next time around, it'll, it'll reverse that 2035 decision. Mm. So it's super unhelpful. Uh, and honestly, we, we look like clowns. Uh, and I feel really bad. There's a lot of English executives working in a lot of car companies that were the advocates of the UK, uh, pushing it forward in front of their management, saying the UK is a really good place to come and use as a test bed for, for the future. And suddenly they've had their legs cut from under them by their own government. And you know, they look stupid. I look stupid. Mm. Um, and the fact is, it doesn't change anything because by 2030, 
80% of the cars sold in the UK have to be EV by regulation. Yeah. Super unhelpful. Yeah. You must still have auto industry friends across other countries. Obviously, in Japan, you will. What are they saying about this in terms of how it deters investment for a massive one, really? I mean, look, yes, I have friends and we'll talk privately, but you don't need to go there. You can see what's said publicly. I mean, it's straightforward and it's understandable. And, you know, there are 800,000 jobs that are sustained by the auto industry in the UK. More importantly, it casts big shadow. Um, it casts a shadow on education, casts a shadow on things like aeronautical engineering, the cross-pollination from having a strong car industry into other industries means that you know, millions of people are affected. If you lose that capability, then then basically you create a vacuum and you rapidly become a de-industrialized country. And, and that's bigger than just the car industry. It's a huge mistake that history will look back upon this period and the mistakes that the current administration have made within that and remember it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not just the Tory party here. This has, been, this has been declining for a long time. But I would say in the last three or four years, we've probably done more damage than any of the other periods combined together. Yeah. Andy, you've been very generous with your time already, but I'm just going to start to wrap up with some more personal questions, if you like. So what do you do to relax outside of work? Do you have any hobbies? And do you get back to Japan much? So I do get back to Japan when I can, maybe uh, twice a year. It's no secret. I love Japanese food. I love Japanese sake. I love the culture. Uh, And I have a little bit of business out there that gives me an excuse to go back. So as I say, I go back when I can. Relaxation, well, I'm busy most of the time, but but I do race, uh, car racing. Uh, And I have for a a long time done GT3, GT4. Uh, This season, I I took on the the challenge of the Caterham 270 uh, series, which is seven weekends a year. Uh, And the Caterham is essentially the old Lotus 7. So really, really lightweight, small Ford engine, really really fun um but but also racing is one of those few things that 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 sort of gives me butterflies makes me feel nervous before a race and it's quite quite exhilarating and one of those things that I, i would say that i'm not naturally good at so i have to work at it uh but but also to make a car slither its way around a track at a very high speed um you know makes you respect Formula One drivers and just what they do. And so I really enjoy it. And when you're racing, you can't think about what you're doing at work. You have to concentrate on the job in hand. How many cars do you own and uh, do you have a favourite? I own a few. Um, so obviously I own my Caterham, uh, my Caterham that I race with. I've got my day car, which is um, a VW ID3. Um, it's one of the few cars that are made that, that is made net zero. I have a 2011 Nissan Leaf for obvious reasons, one of the first ones that was uh, manufactured in the United Kingdom. And then I have five Astons. So one first one is a 1980 Vantage. It was basically the first British muscle car, I guess. Um, beautiful, beautiful old lady that it is. Um, all that Connolly and gasoline smell as you get into the car. Um, then I have what was one of my first vehicles when I joined Aston, which was a GT8, one of those cars that helped save the company. Essentially, it's a GT4 car on the road. And the beauty is that it's um, 
it's it's one of the two prototypes that were made so there's a real legacy to it i also have a vantage a current day vantage obviously one that came from my period of management modified a little bit insofar as it's got a unique hood on it's got the racing hood with the big air takes in it so it was done on a single vehicle type approval uh, my other, the nearest I get to with the Astons to being a day car, probably the most practical of all of the Astons, is the DBS. I have a DBS Volante soft top, uh, which is perfect in almost every condition. And of course, I have uh, a Valkyrie, which is my pride and joy. And if you like, the Valkyrie, which is a Formula One car on the road, is one bookend of my career. I would say the pinnacle of the internal combustion engine and on the other end of my career the other bookend is the nissan leaf which is essentially the first of the electric vehicles and so in, in many respects that collection represents my career I, I notice you don't have an austin rover in that collection i'm looking if any of the listeners have any idea of a 1990 mini um that was one of the the, the my little opportunity to isagonis's legacy was the opportunity at Rover to save the Mini for a little while, in that so far as my team managed to package the uh, Euro 1 Catalyst uh, in that vehicle. So if any of your listeners know of one, do let me know. There you go. You hit it here first. Andy Palmer, you've led a fascinating career, and obviously you've got a very big garage to house all of that. Your career's taken you from the shop floor to the boardroom, something that not too many executives can claim. So thank you for giving up some time to talk to me on the All Points West podcast and uh, good luck with everything. My huge pleasure. Thank you.